Oh, oh man, I am beat. You would not believe what I just did. What did you just do? Did you watch Darkstalkers again? No. I just ran around the same pieces of furniture about five dozen times, and I don't think I even turned around once. Oh, no. Were you running through Hanna-Barbera background? Yeah, I I, I think we need to remodel the place. (laughs) I knew I shouldn't have looked into that Hanna-Barbera furniture catalog. (laughs) There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penny and James can sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello everyone, I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome yet again to the Pemmy and James kind of sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. And this November is Mystery Month. Why? Well, it's a mystery to us. <laughs> we just go with these things, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> like Soing Scoop? Why is this a mystery? <laughs> For a large chunk of the 70s, the mystery format of cartoons was one of, if not the most prominent concepts going and you can all tie it back to fred silverman yep he came up with the idea of we should do a kid's show with like teenagers in a haunted house yeah he got the idea based on the success he was experiencing with filmation's archie's cartoons which featured bubblegum pop songs that became so popular one of them is still recognizable to this day sugar sugar sugar, sugar. So, to get his new teenage act going, he turned to Hanna-Barbera, asking for a rock group, just one that would solve mysteries to differentiate them from Mr. Andrews and company. Funny how that band part eventually got dropped out. Completely. And then would be reinstated with a different Archie Comics property. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yep. So, he comes up with this deal, and he throws it up to uh, CBS's head executive who told him that this is too scary. We can't show this to kids. Yeah. The, the idea was, was passed from Hanna-Barbera on to the team of writers, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears and character designer, Iwao Takamoto, all of whom had been working with the company for a good bit. Takamoto was notably the designer behind Astro of the Jetsons and a solid majority of the characters in wacky races, including Penelope Pitstop. And before that, he'd worked for Disney on films like Cinderella and Lady and the Tramp. Yeah, he actually does a lot of designing for Hanna-Barbera, especially in the 70s. Meanwhile, Ruby Spears were doing gag writing for not just Hanna-Barbera, but Pate Freeling and the Crofts, who were just getting started on their own around this time period, having created the Banana Splits for Hanna-Barbera in, I want to say, 68. Somewhere around there. Yeah, like Pemmy said, the original pitch was just decided to be too scary. I think the title for that one was Who's Scared or uh, Mystery 5 was another name they were thinking of going for. But on a late night flight back while listening to some Frank Sinatra and hearing him improv some Scooby-Dooby-Doo, Fred Silverman realized... We'll name the dog Scooby, push him to the front, and that'll be the show. And pretty much making Shaggy and Scooby into his kind of own version of Abbott and Costello, for lack of better words. Basically, yeah, Takamoto took that from the song Strangers in the Night. Scooby didn't originally start as Scooby. 
this it was originally going to be a sheepdog named Too Much. But they decided sheepdog might be a little too on the nose with Archie's uh, hot dog. Yeah, and when they were considering a Great Dane before that, they were afraid it would be too similar to comics' other Great Dane, Marmaduke. I think Takamoto did a good job of making Scooby not look like Marmaduke, despite being a Great Dane. Mainly because he kind of designed Scooby to be the worst-looking Great Dane ever. Yeah, he purposely went to talk to top dog breeders about award-winning Great Danes, and then went in the opposite direction, making the dog bow-legged and awkwardly proportioned on purpose. Uh, Gave him a big chin and sloped back. Also, no Great Dane has a, a brown and a black dot coat. So, what's interesting though is the the naming him Scooby Doo has been credited to both Fred Silverman and Takamoto. So, I it it seems like there's a confusion on who exactly came up with the name. Right. Granted, they also tend to give uh, all creative credit to Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, which also I don't think is fair because again, Iowa Takamoto designed the character, so he should get a creation credit as far as i'm concerned absolutely not to mention fred silverman came up with the original concept yeah you know again it's the many fathers origin story of of animated characters though fred silverman was convinced this was going to be a hit and boy golly was he freaking right (laughs) no kidding Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? joined CBS's Saturday morning roster in the fall of 1969 and quickly became a sensation, capturing at points 65% of Nielsen families watching during that time frame. And it's one of my absolute favorite cartoon shows ever. It's arguably the crown jewel of Hanna-Barbera's animated legacy, probably competing only with the Flintstones in terms of importance and legacy and arguably if you want to count tom and jerry but that's technically despite being created by william hannah and joseph barbera that was a mgm property right but yeah scooby-doo is by far the most famous creation they have because i mean look you can just prove that by the fact that they're still making scooby-doo stuff in comparison to sadly anything else from hannah barbera essentially and we will uh get into that that legacy at the end of the episode but we've got a mystery to solve and a cast to describe so let's get into our main core characters it was originally going to be five kids but they narrowed it down to a quartet which i think is probably for the best because i can only i can't even imagine what the fifth kid would have been doing it probably would have been like another fred or something to be honest and they based the characters off of uh, the characters from dobie gillis Yep, and since then, their archetypes are as ingrained in the pop culture zeitgeist as, say, the Peanuts Kids or Mickey Mouse and Friends. You know, you look at these characters and you know immediately the dynamic. I think it's really impressive that that, that Fred's design still works to this day because I don't think anyone knows what an ascot is anymore. (laughs) And if they do, it's only because Fred wears one. Yeah, Freddie Jones is our ostensible leader, a tall, strapping young man who takes charge, makes traps, drives the van, and at this point in the uh, evolution of these characters, doesn't do much else interesting. Though he sometimes does get in a little bit over his head. He's also named after Fred Silverman. Naturally. Also, I think one important thing to mention about uh, Mr. Freddie Jones is he's voiced by Frank Welker in his debut cartoon voice acting role. Which yes. Frank 
Welker himself would go on to voice many, 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 many other cartoon characters. Yeah, his numerous credits include... Uh, look, just go look at his Wikipedia page. We ain't got time to go over that list. But we'll, but we'll just say Megatron, Abu, and Assorted Animals. I'm just going to put it put this out there. One, his filmography has its own section in Wikipedia separate from himself. That says a lot. Two, he's like half of the cast of Transformers alone. <laughs> now, if Freddy is the inferred brawn, Velma Dinkley is the overt brains. Boy, howdy is she. She is the one that often pieces things together, often gets the clues, and often knows a lot about like just Basic identifying things, for in, slight forensics, and basically is just really, really smart. She's voiced here in this cartoon by Nicole Jaffe, who was discovered uh, performing Patty in a production of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Now, do note, we're not talking Peppermint Patty. We're talking the original Patty, who'd been with, who's been part of Peanuts since the very first strip. Oh, yeah, there is one other thing we should probably mention about Frank Welker. Oh, yeah. Which is, he is the only person in this cast that's still playing their character to this very day. Like, Frank Welker has been Fred, with the exception of the Scoob movie and a pup named Scooby-Doo has been Fred in every incarnation of Scooby-Doo. Which is very, very impressive, and God bless him. The fact that he's like 75, I think, and he still can just sound like teenage Freddie Jones is impressive. I want to know his secret. <laughs> now, back to Velma real quick. Her trademark jinkies and the inevitable losing of her glasses gives her a decent shtick to go along with her skeptical nature and her smarts, making her a fairly well-rounded character for the time period. Jinkies. Jinkies. That, that's some sort of cereal? You know, all the times we've been up and down the cereal aisle, you'd think we'd have found that one. <laughs> I wonder how they came up with the phrase jinkies, because I don't think I've ever heard it in anything other than Scooby-Doo. Now, the member of our quartet who does not fare quite so well in this initial iteration in terms of characterization is Daphne Blake. Well, hey, to her credit, she is danger-prone Daphne, so being clumsy is more than I can give most female characters that appeared in cartoons during these ages true but you know that's about all she had serving as an accessory to calamity triggering traps too soon being kidnapped and so on although the kidnapping doesn't happen nearly as frequently as it does to a lot of other women i mean this is not princess peach i i do feel that like a lot of people exaggerate how much daphne gets kidnapped in this show because it doesn't happen really that often but a lot of people act like it happens every episode right she would, though, develop far more in later years as a character, effectively becoming the team's financier and sort of a woman of action in some instances. Yeah, she kind of becomes a go-girl a go girl later in the series, though I kind of liked in much later show Be Cool Scooby-Doo, they kind of play her as kind of goofy, almost Pinkie Pie-ish, which was interesting and amusing take on her. But uh, yeah, she's she's definitely the least developed character, but... Dang it, she still has a good design and she has her good moments. Mm -hmm. In our first season of Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? She's performed by Indira Stefaniana, credited as Stefaniana Christofferson in, in the show's credits. 
And her other major voice role is Princess Dawn in the DePatty Freeling show, Here Comes the Grump. Mm, yeah, major put in quotation marks there. <laughs> in the second season, and nearly every pre-revival Scooby show thereafter, Heather North would, would take over the role at the recommendation of Nicole Jaffe. I actually like Heather North as Daphne, even though we don't see her in either of the episodes we're going to watch, because um, I think she's actually a really good voice for Daphne. She actually it gives her more energy, and she feels a lot less uh, damsel in distress-ish, or a lot less, uh, I don't know, it feels like she gives her a little more personality, just with her voice and acting. There's a warmer delivery to her Daphne. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. She was like the original voice actress's roommate or something and was like, that's how she got suggested or something to that extent. Yeah, what I read was she was uh, Velma's actress's roommate. Ah. So. I knew she's somebody's roommate. Yeah. (laughs) And she must have liked the role because, like you said, she played it until they until they did the first like revival. She was Daphne straight up through like the entire like original run. Mm hmm. Even coming back for stuff like 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. But as you alluded to earlier, the real stars of the show are Norval Rogers and his dog, a.k.a. Shaggy and Scooby. Norval Rogers. Yeah, no wonder he goes by Shaggy. I I, I kind of wonder if giving him the name Norval and having him go by Shaggy is a reference to Jughead Jones from The Archies, since Jughead's real name is Forsyth P. Jones, but he goes by Jughead. Possibly. They both have the uh, love-to-eat quality to them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the cowardly and food-crazy antics these two get up to inform much of the action and humor of the show. They're always looking for the next snack and the best way away from the monster of the week. Uh, and see, and they're also by far the most developed characters in the original run. Mm-hmm. Shaggy's voiced by well-known radio DJ Casey Kasem. Yep. In addition to his time as spending decades hosting the Top 40 Countdown every Sunday in syndication, animation fans would know Casey as Alexander Cabot III in Josie and the Pussycats, Robin on multiple incarnations of Batman and Super Friends cartoons, and Cliff Jumper in the original Transformers cartoons. As well as Blue Streak. Mm-hmm. See, uh, and he was also Teletran 1, though he left Transformers for reasons yeah reasons we'll discuss if and when we finally do transformers as we keep saying it's on the list he's also a big time uh, vegetarian Mm -hmm. meanwhile scooby-doo himself is voiced by our old friend don messick who we've seen multiple times on this podcast and we'll see many more times in its future if we're watching a hanna-barbera show you can almost a hundred percent expect Don Messick to appear in it somewhere. Indeed. And Don Messick is my personal favorite voice actor, though he has been in stuff outside of Hanna-Barbera, like Hampton Pig in Tiny Toons, or Ratchet and uh, Gears in Transformers. Now, before we dive in, there's a couple more things I want to make sure we note about uh, these characters. While Scooby and Shaggy are often compared to stoners with their appetites, laid-back demeanors, and Shaggy's hippie-esque language, the whole would-you-do-it-for-a-Scooby-snack bit originated a lot earlier. 
What's also interesting in watching the show is you can see that the Shaggy liking the Scooby Snacks isn't something that immediately happens. It kind of something that happens as the show progresses because in the, uh, I think it's the episode uh, Decoy for a Dog Napper is the first time he actually tries one of the Scooby Snacks and actually likes it. But the origin is Quick Draw McGraw's supporting character Snuffles the Dog. This dog would do just about anything for a dog biscuit, which would send him into exaggerated euphoric joy before he'd enthusiastically carry out the task. A skit that would also be reused for Dastardly and Muttley and their flying machines when Muttley gets uh, metal. Mm-hmm. Now, that quick draw himself had a similar reaction to the biscuits, though. Makes us wonder what was in them, much the same as generations of kids, parents, and everything in between have wondered about what's in those Scooby Snacks. Like zoinks. Secondly, I want to relate a personal anecdote. My niece, when she was maybe six and I was showing her some wacky racist cartoons, made the visual connection between Shaggy and Lazy Luke's facial hair, thus strengthening that uh, connection with Takamoto. I want to say that uh, two things I want to mention is one thing I like about this early since this is the, we're going to be looking at Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, which is the original Scooby-Doo show, I like how Scooby's portrayed in this a lot more than later shows. He feels more dog-like and less anthropomorphized. Like, even though he's speaking English, it's very broken and very, and he's way harder to understand in this first series. It feels like as he, as they progress, he becomes more, for lack of better words, humanistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> To the point to where, like, Shaggy actually hooked him up with a girl in an episode of the Shaggy and Scrappy... Sh- I mean, the Scooby and Scrappy show. Oh, dear. See, But uh, I, I like this incarnation of Scooby the best. He feels... It, it's weird because since he speaks broken English and since he acts more dog-like, I'm, it weirdly makes me more willing to believe him as this weird dog that just happens to talk for some reason. Because it feels like he's learning to talk, but he's not good at it. I mean, he'll say weird stuff sometimes, like, I'm following up or whatnot when in episodes. As for Shaggy, when I was in high school, I, I was a dead ringer for Shaggy. I had like, it used to be, like, lanky and skinny and had, like, bushy brown hair. And, and to this day, I still have a habit of saying things like like and man in my sentences a lot. The most edited out thing in most of my videos is just me saying like, like five or six hundred times. <laughs> like Scoob. Like Slink Scoob. <laughs> Admittedly, my Scooby impression is less refined than your Shaggy. My Shaggy's not very good either. But... At least it's recognizable. Yeah, sometimes that's all you need, I guess. Yeah. So, shall we uh, get on to the backstage rage? Yes, which sounds like something that shouldn't be appropriate for a kid's show, in retrospect. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm picturing uh, David Lee Roth screaming at the top of his lungs that the brown M&Ms haven't been separated. <laughs> There's a reason for that, but that's neither here nor there. I was just going to say Led Zeppelin after party, but sure, whatever. Uh. Yeah, we we don't need to talk about any mud sharks. <laughs> Anyhow, it's evening. Uh, wait a minute. 
Is it ever daytime in this iteration of the franchise? It sure doesn't feel like it, and I'm okay with that, because it gives this show a lot of atmosphere. Which is another thing I like about this first series, is it does have a lot of atmosphere, and they actually do manage to make it feel somewhat spooky, though still very kid-oriented. Absolutely. But we have Shaggy and Scooby carrying a pizza, and they can't resist digging in. After all, they've already had, what, four, five beforehand? That's barely a snack. <laughs> well, you know, it's a pizza. I love pizza. I would. I don't think I'd eat that many pizzas, but dang, I think Shaggy needs to get into a competition with Michelangelo for the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Indeed. So just as Shaggy's showing off and Scooby eats the pizza right off his fingers, a car with a shadowy driver passes by and a violin case falls out of the car. Shaggy and Scooby go to investigate and even call out for the guy that say that he dropped something. But when they look in, there is nothing but money. Yeah, a lot of it. Shaggy goes to call the gang, sensing a case about this case. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Yeah, now you got me in the habit of doing that. I am happy to hear that. So, leaving it with Scooby, what looks like the same car pulls up, and with it, a female poodle, limping on three legs and whimpering. Scooby, being a dog, can't resist to help another dog, especially a cute female dog. Yep, he goes to investigate, leaving the violin case to be snatched up. Which, by the way, how talented is this puppeteer that he can puppet that dog while going over and getting that case and coming back at the same time? Admittedly, it's a a bit of a leap, but we'll we'll let it go. He's got very long arms. Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe he's closer than it looks. Maybe. So the poodle puppet snickers and vanishes into the car as Scooby laughs back, only to realize his major mistake. I goofed. Once the Mysteries Inc. gang arrives, Scooby performs a quick pantomime describing what happens... And as they start looking around, Daphne finds a marionette rig, or a puppet control as they call it here, Sans Puppet. See, Daphne is useful. Oh, yeah. I'm more saying that to, you know, the audience who keep <laughs> the right. people keep yeah. hating on Daphne. Naturally. Oh, we never mentioned Daphne also has her own catchphrase, which is Jeepers. Yeah, which will become much more pronounced in the modern incarnation under Grey Griffin Delise. As well as Freddy saying lines like, hold the phone. (laughs) So the the control says Pietro's puppets. And Fred recognizes that group as performing at the Strand Theater, leaving Scooby to figure the girl dog was a puppet. He's a smart dog. Yeah. (laughs) Even if he didn't recognize the puppet originally, but that's a really good puppet. (laughs) To be sure, it it doesn't look like a puppet. It looks like a standard Hanna-Barbera poodle. So if the audience could make the mistake... So could Scooby. Man, Jim Henson would be impressed by these guys. Mm-hmm. So Velma starts assembling the clues, and the gang figures out it's counterfeiters. I'm not sure how puppets figure into that equation, but the other two make sense, so I'll allow it. Hey, hey, you gotta have a front somehow. So the gang makes their way to the Strand, and Daphne suggests they audition Scooby as a trained dog act, which Scooby rather likes. And it immediately goes to his head. Mm-hmm. The quote uh, often said line throughout the series as seeing Scooby like proudly present himself and being like, wow, what a ham. Inside, 
they spy an old man operating a puppet, and Velma thinks it could be another clue. However, they go in and talk to the puppeteer, who claims to just be a doorman that fiddles around with puppets a little bit. Yeah, having picked up tips from Pietro, and Scooby auditions with his with a goofy-looking tap dance, which, for a dog, ain't bad. I think the fact that he talks for a dog should be enough to get him a job, but, you know... Eh. In this universe, who knows? Well, it's worth mentioning that in Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, this is before they start adding, you know, other members of Scooby's family, and in this, Scooby's the only talking dog, because you'll actually see other dogs, and they don't talk. They just bark. It's one of those things. I mean, did Huckleberry Hound ever encounter another talking dog before he crossed over with Augie and, and the others? That's a good point. Hanna-Barbera is an interesting uniform. <laughs> Hanna-Barbera is an interesting universe. To be sure. However, while Scooby does his little audition and the doorman continues to show off the puppets, Scooby gets scared by one of the witch puppets that somehow manages to move by itself, hmm. knocking Shaggy into a desk, and they notice a fresh $20 bill. Yeah, Fred has Shaggy hide it as the doorman turns back, and the gang quickly excuses themselves to the confusion of both the girls and the doorman. You, you know, they, they really could have came up with a, something better. It's like, oh, we didn't realize how late it was or nothing, but no, we really gotta go. But back at the mystery machine, the guys explain what they found, and Velma inspects the bill, determining it to be genuine. The gang surmises it's a decoy to make them think nothing suspicious is going on. I had to consider it for a moment, but this would make sense, actually, considering whoever manipulated the poodle puppet would know a controller was lost and could be traced back to the theater. Also, he would probably recognize uh, Scooby. Absolutely. However, there's a, another problem that I think this show really glosses over. Technically, our f heroes have just committed petty theft. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Shaggy even talks about straight up using it to make it get another pizza. <laughs> Still, leaps of logic are rampant in shows of this era, but this isn't quite one of them. No. Even though at first blush, you might think so. So, Fred says, it's like, so what do we do? We go back. <laughs> so I imagine they drove the mystery machine around in a circle. Or, you know, it's a Hanna-Barbera show. Maybe if they keep going straight, they'll eventually come to the same place again. <laughs> yes. So once back, they spot the doorman's asleep and the door is unlocked. Sneaking in past him, Scooby knocks a hat down and looks behind him to make sure he didn't wake the doorman. Satisfied, he rejoins the gang, but the puppet opens an eye. You know, that is mildly creepy, to be honest. A little bit. I'll bet you this episode influenced one R.L. Stein. Probably. Also, our heroes have now committed breaking and entering, but oh well, that happens quite a bit with these with our crew yeah yeah kid show logic folks they go exploring the stage to find some clues or as shaggy says checks the clues closet hold on there's only one response to that pun basically yeah i think that sums up pretty much daphne's response too <laughs> but while the prop door is being the subject of Shaggy's goofing around, we see a massive puppet lifted up and dropped down, at least for the sake of the audience. Very cloaked, dark-looking person. 
and a similar figure with an overcoat and a wide-brimmed hat starts messing with Shaggy and Scooby by dropping scenery on them. And then Velma similarly almost gets done in by a sandbag. Which she takes pretty calmly, all things considered. To be sure. It's like, maybe, because Daphne's like, maybe the maybe the rope broke, and she's like, broke nothing, this has been cut, and ropes don't cut themselves. Yeah, this is what, episode seven, eight, nine? By this time, Velma's probably developed a little personal resistance to some of the more dangerous aspects. Not that continuity's a big thing in Hanna-Barbera cartoons, but headcanon can be fun. Yeah. Let's see. See, now you're making me look it up. I'm, like, pulling up the episodes. It's like, which one is this? It is episode... Oh, it's episode nine. Oh, you beat me to it. I was almost there. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's all right. But yes, episode nine. So we're, like, in the mid... A little bit past... Well, yeah, kind of the mid-area of the third season. uh, First season. First season. So after the commercial break, Shaggy and Scooby are headed to the wardrobe with our shadowy figure observing them. You know, maybe he should have been called the Creeper instead of the one we got in Season (laughs) 2. This one doesn't really have a name, really. No. I I do like how, like, Scooby messes with this uh, jack-in-the-box, and Shaggy tells him to stop goofing around, and then immediately starts putting costumes on. (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. And Scooby joins in by putting on some masks. But the problem is, Shaggy's second outfit the cloaked cavalier matches the one another figure, presumably our antagonist, is wearing. And Scooby thinks he's seen double until the double vanishes. Yep. There's two of you. There's two of me. I don't get it. Yeah, Shaggy realizes something's up and they bolt. Also, I want to say this puppeteer moves around fast. No kidding. You'd think he had the theater custom built for this sort of thing. Uh, let's see again i think jim henson would be very impressed mm-hmm. <laughs> velma and daphne are still batting zero as they walk across the stage and the antagonist is lurking in the prompter's box right after fred tells them to come over here to see what something and surprise there he is cackling hey save it save it for the actual jokes pal <laughs> he was loud enough for Velma to spot him, and just then Shag and Scoob charge in like bats out of hell, or as close to it as their notorious animation cycle will let them. You know, they they give them a lot of heck for like the animate for reusing the the run and walk cycles in this show, but I actually think it's a it's for the cost measures this show has to work with. I think it's actually a good thing that they did because it actually adds personality to the characters since they all have their own specific run and walk cycles absolutely and it's a good cycle especially when you put it up against some of the others of the time all you have to do is go to the new scooby-doo movies watch their crossover with josie and the pussycats and compare and contrast yep or or watch the oh what's really bad on that is if you watch the crossover episode they did with Speed Buggy and for whatever reason since the Speed Buggy characters in Speed Buggy just they would just make a run cycle whenever there needed to be one and there wasn't one that they were reusing for their crossover in the new Scooby movies they just applied the Scooby characters run cycles to them so suddenly Tinker runs just like Shaggy and uh Mark will run just like Freddy and Debbie runs just like uh, Daphne. 
and it's very awkward looking. <laughs> and, it, and it makes the criticism of Xeroxing these characters all the more blatant. Yes. But despite that, I, I do love the run cycles. Like, uh, I like Shaggy has a very floppy walk cycle, but then he has that ducked down track running like run cycle. And Velma has what a friend of mine referred to as the choo-choo train run cycle. <laughs> And Scooby's legs are all over the place in a panic. Yep. That th- these are really well done walk cycle walk and run cycles for a 1969 animated show. Mm-hmm. They definitely put the money in it into those cycles. So yeah, let them reuse them. Yeah. Heck, they must have liked them because they use them for almost every title screen. Now, once both halves of the crew realize they've spotted the same guy, Fred wants to get to the prompter's box, but Scooby's not having it. Man. So yeah, Daphne's like, here's a Scooby stack. No strings attached. Just catch. And throws it into the prompter's box. (laughs) But once asked, he spots a bunch of violin cases, which eventually the gang finds to be empty. I just want to say that Scooby has a right to be pissed. That was a dirty trick. (laughs) No kidding. Man, Daphne, that's just rude. (laughs) But yeah, Freddy's starting to think that this is a wild goose chase, but they mentioned the the weird cloaked man that both Scooby and the girls saw. Mm-hmm. And just then, somebody's playing the organ, and it ain't Booker T. Jones on his old Hammond B3. I didn't know Booker T. could play the organ. Not that one. Oh. I guess I dig it, brother! Sorry. Jeez. <laughs> Yeah, I think that Booker T may have derived the name from the musician Booker T. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see this guy do the spinner Rooney. No. So the gang pops into the prompter's box and watch him play out of tune, only to vanish before their eyes. It's amazing what you can do with a brief loss of light. No kidding. (laughs) As they get out, the gang debates if it was a figment of their imagination when, speaking of pro wrestlers, Hacksaw Jim Duggan calls out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no, it's just a Viking shouting, Ho! Who vanishes upward. And that is a rude thing to say to Daphne and Velma, man. I'll say. Made the, amazing those TV sensors didn't catch that. <laughs> and it's followed by a pirate cackling that does the same upward vanishing act. Then, the doe-eyed doggy dame from earlier. Which Scooby ain't having, and he takes her down. And inside the uh, the puppet's uh, body is a printing plate for a counterfeit 20. And animation error alert. What was it? I don't remember what the error was there. When when Velma pulls out the plate, it, the plate is then still in the puppet. Oh, right. That is right. Don't. So this is definitely enough evidence for them to work with. And they go off to the doorman. Ignoring the fact that he almost certainly would have had to hear the organ and the Viking and so on. Hey, he's a very sound sleeper. <laughs> so this scene is, I, I'm going to straight out say this scene is actually kind of just straight up creepy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Fred's shaking the doorman and his head falls loose from his shoulders and they realize he too is a puppet. Actually, Daphne's the one shaking him. Let's say. Oh, oh, my bad. But yeah, his head just limply falls down, like almost like, you know, a dead person. Mm-hmm. For once, I think Shaggy's comment of that, that's it for me, is like legit. It's like, yeah. 
if I saw that in real life, I'd be like, fuck this, I'm out. Yeah, he tries to exit stage left, but they're locked in, and a falcon puppet swoops in to snatch the printing plate. That falcon puppet, by the way, is totally just, totally reuse of Avenger from freaking Birdman. Birdman's trusty bird. Bring Birdman coffee, Avenger. Sorry. (laughs) At this, Fred orders the gang back under the stage for another search. And once there, they realize they didn't check the harp case. How did you not notice this giant harp case? It's a fair point. Though I imagine they were too focused on the violin cases and were interrupted by the organ playing. Regardless, how did you not notice that? Yeah, it's not a good guess, but it's my only guess. Hey, it's it's something. Anyhow, it turns out the harp case is a false front for a door leading to another room with a printing press and scads of fake 20s. And lo and behold, here comes Mr. Scary, Mr. Cloak again, and he gives chase. Our cackling antagonist chases the gang away back into the upstairs via a ladder in the tunnel, leading them back to stage once they push their pursuer off the trap door. Impressive ability for four people on a ladder to push up a door at once. In what is probably a very narrow space. Cartoon logic. Yeah. And at this point, the Viking and pirate return. And Velma realizes they're puppets, too. And why be scared of puppets? They can't hurt you. Naturally, Scooby looks up and spots the puppet master, and without even any prompting, goes for the backstage ropes to lift himself up via the gravity of a sandbag, and right after the malicious marionette manipulator. That is a heavy sandbag. Yeah, to lift (laughs) Scooby up, especially on a full stomach. It was to lift any Great Dane up. Those aren't exactly yeah. small dogs. <laughs> to be sure. But even the gang are impressed by this display. Yep. Oh, Scooby-Doo's got him on the run. Yeah, this this might be one of Scooby's crowning moments of awesome. He, he has his moments. Scooby chases off the guy off the stage, and he falls into a drum, which Shaggy promptly drops a tuba onto. <laughs> so Shaggy got a little brave, too. Yeah. And the culprit is the doorman, who who was the puppeteer Pietro himself all along. Honestly, he was the only other person we'd seen in this episode until just now with the cop handling the arrest. So it's not a huge surprise. You know, it happens. Yeah. Sometimes you only get one suspect. But Scooby, dressed to the nines in magician's garb, gets the last word with his catchphrase, which is just him scatting his name. And that's all she wrote. Hey, does this mean that Shaggy kicked some brass? Ooh. Oh, actually, that should be we should say that's all he wrote, since the writing team is male. Ruby Spears and Bill Lutz, who was a veteran writer of spooky stuff from his time writing the sitcom The Adams Family. Yep. And we will be back in two snaps after this break. More Scooby-Doo after these messages. On the next Pemmy and James podcast, it's no mystery that networks wanted to duplicate the Scooby-Doo formula to recapture the success. And in 1976, CBS presented one of the more blatant ones in Clue Club. Watching it now, we get the feeling Hanna-Barbera wanted to focus more on the mystery-solving aspect rather than the spooks, 
but network's execs demanded the spooks be included, creating a very muddled show. We'll woof and wimp our way through this one in two weeks. Now, back to Scooby-Doo! So, the backstage rage is actually a deviation from the standard formula in that there isn't a traditional unmasking, there's no one necessarily spooky element, but several of them, and it's not a traditional monster. Yeah, that's actually what I like. Another thing that I do like about the uh, original Scooby-Doo Where Are You is they're far more experimental with the plot and the writing in it. It's not as run-of-the-mill as the series eventually gets. Yeah. Another especially notable uh, deviation is the episode with Charlie the Robot. Yep. And, and you know, that that's one that we almost did ourselves. Yeah, there's a lot of good episodes in the original series. It was hard to decide on which episode, but I wanted to pick this one since it stands out as being so much different from the usual formula. Indeed. But as far as the formula itself goes... They don't get spookier than the spooky space kook. Oh, I love this guy. This is the only Scooby-Doo monster that literally spooked me out when I was a kid. Like, he legitimately creeped me out. Yeah. You want to talk about establishing shots, folks? For the original run of this series, they don't get any better than this tattered old spacecraft flying through the sky and the slow creepy approach of the titular space kook a glowing skull-faced being in a spacesuit and its haunting laugh <laughs> you know this one is going to be special just from that opening moment uh, that's a really good laugh from don messick i have to give credit to Indeed, it's a higher-pitched version of the ululations two of the Herculoids, Gloop and Gleep, uttered a couple years earlier. And archival audio of this laugh would get Don's voice into the recent Scoob movie. Well, that and also archives of uh, his monthly laugh. Yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting thing in that Scoob movie. A majority of Muttley's lines are archived stuff and whenever they need them to say something that wasn't archived uh, billy west came in for it which he does amazingly well a good monthly mm-hmm. so getting back to our episode the gang are on the road and shaggy is making sandwiches with bologna meatloaf and double dutch chocolate syrup that's a that's a sandwich <laughs> yeah and we should mention they don't seem to have a consistent design for the Mystery Machine interior beyond the front seat. No, because uh, like uh, the bring back decoy for a dog dapper again. There's a scene in that where they have all this like radio and like technical stuff in there, and it's like you never see that ever again. <laughs> yeah, and in this particular scene, it's more like kitchen cabinets and a countertop, which you also never see again. Yeah, they got a full-out kitchen in there somehow. Also, this is also something that they did a lot in early Scooby stuff, and they started, like, not doing so much later, is Shaggy and Scooby would just eat weird concoctions. One of which was a sandwich that I remember is liverwurst a la mode. Wow. This must be where Muscle Mutt got his unique appetite. <laughs> well, that was a Joe Ruby and Ken Spears property. Indeed. Or- or creation, more accurately. But but just then, the mystery machine runs out of gas. Freddy, I thought you were more responsible than that. Yeah, you know, 
It happens. I mean, everybody's done that at least once. Yeah, admit it, I I haven't, but I've had batteries die on me while I was on the road. I sadly have uh-huh. more than I want to talk about. So, <laughs> so they're stopped outside an old farmhouse, and it's basically their only port in the proverbial storm. But it's not a particularly hospitable port. Nope. They got quite the grouchy farmer at this place. He's got reasons. Yeah, he insists that the gang get, thinking they're reporters and not believing their gas troubles. He's been pestered ever since the Monster of the Week moved into his area. And just then, Velma spots glow-in-the-dark footprints, which fade away after a moment. That's pretty impressive. (laughs) Mm -hmm. As Daphne takes stock of the situation... Get a little comedic business with a chicken, a worm, and Scooby's tail. Hey, to that chicken's credit, if Scooby's tail was really a worm, that would have been one heck of a meal. No kidding. So, as Scooby screams that the ghost has got him, Shaggy sees the chicken and goes, Oh, you big chicken, it was only a chicken. Get down. <laughs> Which, I want to give... Also, credit to Shaggy. How strong is Shaggy Rogers? I mean, he literally can hold Scooby like he's practically nothing. That's a great day. They are not light dogs. Yeah, Shaggy's uh, considerably athletic in these early episodes. He's noted as a gymnast in one. And a track star. Yeah. Or a track man. I can really run. (laughs) Sorry. So the farmer does eventually give them some gas, presumably because the gang off-screen promised to look into the mysterious goings-on. Or just convinced him, or he realized that they weren't like reporters. reporters. Yeah. Back on the road, the derelict spacecraft flies overhead. Its flight path leads the gang to an abandoned airfield. So they go to investigate, because of course they do. That's what they do. We've got luck, and it's all bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, they get to the gate. Daphne thinks the gate's closed, but it the wind. Pushes it wide open, scaring the crap out of Shaggy and Scooby. (laughs) Yeah, that and some shattering glass spooks the duo so much they want to stay put. But that laugh convinces them to keep with their friends. I don't blame them. Nah, me neither. (laughs) I think Don Messick would do that to just scare the crap out of people randomly. Well, this would be the time to do it. I mean, if I could do that laugh, I would sneak up on people and do it. (laughs) Following the -the glow-in-the-dark tracks to the shed, they hear what sounds like an electrical generator or some such to my ears. A quick, dirty window gag later, they find the tracks vanished right at the door, and inside is, yep, a generator. Still warm. I'm going to give Shaggy a little bit of credit on this. When they were just like, let's go in, and he's like, no, let's go for a peek in. Well, it doesn't work, and it does do a gag. I have to say, that is a smarter way to go. In honesty. It is. It is. Since you don't know what exactly is going on in there. Yeah. But, yep, there's a generator going on, and something is weird. Yeah, and that's something weird is that tattered spaceship landing right next to them. Which, I like how they're like, that literally lands right next to them, and they're like, well, we need to go split up and look for this guy. It's like, Freddy, it just landed right in front of you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we follow Shag and Scoob, and they're moaning their luck, but they try to bolster their courage with food, namely some peanuts, which Scooby eats shell and all. Stomach of iron, that dog. 
Actually, when I was really young, I used to eat the shells of peanuts. Actually, so did I. It's a wonder my digestive system didn't shred itself to pieces. Maybe that's why I have so much problems now. (laughs) Though I don't think I ate them quite like that. (laughs) Yeah. Shaggy tosses some more out, and Scooby runs to catch them, but the kook beats him to it. They scream, and they run. Yeah. They race into an abandoned cargo plane, and the kook follows them into a disguise bit. A mild one, really, with them just wearing aviator hats. I had a friend, uh, my friend Brian loved that scene of them in the airplane so much that he actually made me, like, work with, he loved just Scooby dressed as the pilot so much he had me take a take a screenshot of it so he could put it on his, like, Facebook for the longest time. <laughs> Shaggy tells Scoob to hold his breath and not budge an inch. But the kook catches up to them, and they deploy the miraculously still working life raft, which sends him flying out the cockpit. That's a weak-ass cockpit. (laughs) Either that or a still surprisingly strong raft. Amazing they didn't get destroyed in the process of that. They were cartoon characters. Yeah, slapstick cartoon characters at that. They land on a propeller plane with little to nowhere thing. Lucky for them. Meanwhile, Fred and the ladies find a workshop, and they realize the tools have all been used recently. As the kook pulls a lever and lifts Freddy by his belt via a hook and hoist mechanism. That's some amazing aim. I'm going to give the kook credit for that. Yeah, I bet he's great at crane games. Fred takes this surprisingly well. I think I would be pretty spooked if that happened yeah he's just like hey (laughs) the trio bicker for a bit about how to get him down which only serves to demonstrate how these characters have evolved since this early period Velma and Daphne today would have had him down faster than it took me to type these notes out yep but in this Daphne is confused as to what the device that she needs to look for is and Velma replies with tech uh, what is it? Um, mechanics uh, aren't her strong suit. Yeah, me- the mechanics aren't my bag. So, it, you know, it also gives them. A, I think it's also used to give them an excuse to get Shaggy and Scooby back together with them. Yeah, they they go look for the dynamic doofuses while Fred complains he feels like a side of beef. Out of context line there. <laughs> mm, well, I'm sure Daphne feels the same. So, Shag and Scoop are at the parachute loft and are ambushed by a literal dummy. And then they spook themselves with parachute coverings. Only to pass right by Daphne and Velma, who Shaggy and Scooby's like, Oh, we were just looking for you. And Velma's like, Yes, we noticed that you ran past us. (laughs) Once reunited, Shaggy is pressed for more details on the kook. Unluckily for them, he's right there. That's actually a pretty good delivery, comedic delivery. It's like, well, you might say he looks just like that. <laughs> it's like, and then it's like, oh, crud. <laughs> All five of them bid a retreat before the commercial break. And once back, Shag and Scoob are still running and they arrive at the mess hall. Never heard of a special place to make a mess, Shaggy is- jokes, until he realizes it's a kitchen. This ain't a mess hall scoop. It's a kitchen. Which, by the way, I, I also want to give credit that whenever they all like 
ran, like, even Fred was like, in the cases like this, Shaggy's right. Let's get out of here. <laughs> even Fred's like, yeah, let's book it. <laughs> so they're inspecting the area, and they find fresh food, which a ghost certainly wouldn't need. Also, that is a really small chicken, I just want to say. Yeah, uh, yeah one puny pullet. <laughs> they, they, they get big chickens out here. Or maybe that's what chickens were like in the 19, 1969. Right. Certainly no Rhode Island Red. <laughs> Before we started putting all the growth hormones in our food and stuff. Yeah. Also, one of those like cartoon hams that I always, always think look really... You, you don't really see hams like that much these days. Unless it's like, I don't know, Thanksgiving, maybe. Yeah. So the kook is still after them, and Scoob hides in the automatic dishwasher while Shaggy gets a bucket stuck on his foot, turning said dishwasher on in the process. I guess Scooby got cleaned. Also, what, what the heck of a... What kind of 1960s dishwasher is that? I think they had one of those in my college uh, dining halls. It doesn't look like they've worked very well. Hmm. Again, like the ones at my college dining halls. <laughs> but yeah. Poor Scooby. Yeah, I, I like Shaggy's like, at least it looks like you're trying to make a clean getaway. And Scooby's like, <laughs> nothing. Mm-hmm. But the chase resumes yet again. The remainder of the gang are having little luck until they find a barrel with a newspaper covered in glow-in-the-dark material glowing similarly to the footprints. It's yeah. yesterday's paper, too. And there's nothing older than yesterday's news, except in this context. Yesterday's news is old even in the 1960s. Hmm. Or 1969. But they realize that those that the glowing bits are fingerprints by hold, having Freddy hold it up and it his hands being right where those glowing spots would be. Or his thumbs are. Mm-hmm. Shag and Scoop pop out of trash cans elsewhere and resume the search for their friends only for the kook to still be right behind them. They, they're good at attracting the monsters. Mm-hmm. Also, this goes into one of the funnier jokes the show has done. Yes, <laughs> yes. In a supply room, they lock one door, throw in the key out the window, and try and fail to keep the spook out, not accounting for the direction the other door they barricaded actually opened. They have to leap out the window, fetch the key leap back in, and unlock the door to escape. <laughs> well, it's worth mentioning that Shaggy just told Scooby to put it in a safe place. Scooby's idea of a safe place is throwing it out the window. But the fact they got out the window and don't realize they could have just stayed out the window. Yeah. Are we sure they're not stoned? Uh, Flanks! Did you know your name is Scooby Dooby? <sighs> <sighs> Regardless, they are. I, I love that they not only do this hilariously stupid deal of having to go outside to get the key to go back inside so they can unlock the door to get outside, but Scooby still feels the need to be a smart aleck and stick his tongue at the kook as they run away. <laughs> so when they catch up with the rest of the gang, their shadows scare off Fred and the girls. And the kook is behind them yet again. This is easily one of the most persistent villains in the series. Yeah, not too persistent, because they sure as heck lose them pretty fast this time. Hmm. 
as they catch up with the other gang and observe a strange Jeep. Yeah, Scooby sniffs out gasoline in this vehicle, and the flat tires on it are a front for the real ones underneath. Though, I'm not sure how that would work, because those flat tires would be pretty heavy. Fair. The Jeep starts on its own, making it more akin to Eugene the Jeep. Or maybe it was Hound from Transformers the entire time. Mm, yep. And the kook reappears, and he's not alone. I also want to mention that uh, they they put the star on the back of that jeep, but they didn't. They didn't. It looks like they didn't uh, clean. They forgot they erased the in between lines when they drew the star. Oops. Unless that's supposed to be in pentagram. <laughs> Oops. Oh, it's a wonder the censors didn't catch that. As before the satanic panic happened. <laughs> A quartet of kooks appear from the garages, and Shag and Scoob retreat into the control tower to find Pemmy's pet peeve, a preposterous projector. I I don't know if I'd say pest, pet peeve as much as I just love how in Scooby-Doo and like all of these 70s had, actually a lot of even TV shows and movies would do this thing, where like projectors can practically do anything. It's like, oh, hey, we found a projector. Oh, that spaceship was a projector image this entire time. No, projectors don't work like that, Guy, You have to have something to project on. It doesn't just make images. Right. It's not a holographic projector. Yeah. Because that would be some impressive tech for 1969. Mm -hmm. Scooby tries to get the gang's attention via a bugle, but the kook beats the gang to the tower. They try to barricade it with some chairs, but it's not enough. So instead, they find a parachute. No, Scoob! Only as a last resort! A very last resort! Which comes really fast, because as soon as the space kook breaks through the barricade, they just take the jump for it, much to the uh, worry of their friends down below. Our next scene is a cop car with an officer summoned by the farmer from earlier. A cop that is totally not voiced by Casey Kasem. Mm -hmm. They spot the kook rushing away, and Fred believes he's made a mistake. Because the kook has run into a wind tunnel. Great move, guy. <laughs> Fred turns on the wind tunnel, and we've got our guy trapped. Mm-hmm. Once activated, the wind tunnel loosens the go- ghost's... <laughs> Try saying that three times fast. Loosens the ghost's boots as the gang exposit about phosphorus. And eventually the disguise is undone, and the space ghost is the farmer's neighbor, Henry Bascom. That doesn't look like Space Ghost at all. I've watched every episode of Space Ghost Coast to Coast. He looks nothing like this guy. Yeah, but it turns out he heard the Air Force wanted to reopen the base, and Bascom intended to scare off the other farmers so he could buy the land and turn it around for a profit. And Bascom is totally not voiced by Don Messick. <laughs> I'm too good at this because it's like as soon as he talks, it's like, oh yeah, that's Don Messick. Yeah. <laughs> so like the sheriff talks, I'm like, oh hey, hi Casey Kasem. <laughs> so Shag and Scoob claim they weren't scared, but one last play of the laugh proves them wrong. Dirty play, Freddy. Dirty play. <laughs> hey, they're the comic relief characters. You gotta gotta make butt monkeys of them when you can. <laughs> Basically. It's like, oh, this recording was, the laugh was a, was a sped up recording. And I'm like, nah, that's just Don Messick. <laughs> yeah, I love this episode. It's great. 
Yeah, it, I mean, there's not a lot of duds in this first run of Scooby-Doo cartoons. It is worth mentioning that, like, almost every episode, like, almost all of the monsters, it, it's like a majority of the monsters are either voiced by uh, Don Messick or Frank Welker, usually, in these shows, too. Mm. Though, uh, the Creeper, if I remember right, is actually voiced by Casey Kasem, so. Okay. Creeper! Creeper! So, the success of this series led to CBS renewing for new episodes, and then a revised hour-long format, the new Scooby-Doo movies. Yes, an hour-long format with the same budget as the 30-minute format, and it kind of shows. Yeah. (laughs) Eventually, CBS decided not to renew their option, and Scooby and the gang would move to ABC for the rest of their pre-revival original run of shows. Well, I think that also has to do with the fact that Fred Silverman himself moved from CBS to ABC, and he wanted to bring his own, his popular show with him. Yeah, and he brought Joe Ruby and Ken Spears with him. They weren't quite satisfied with their lot at Hanna-Barbera after having created one of their biggest hits and not getting much resembling of a promotion. And they would get their associate producer credits working for DePate Freeling on the Houndcats and the Barclays. But they'd still do work for Hanna-Barbera, creating Captain Caveman and Jabberjaw. Uh, they also create uh, Blue Falcon and Dynamite. Indeed. And, and got, it, creative, got creation credits in, in the credits for that. Yes, as their persistence paid off. At the same time, they while they landed at ABC with Silverman, Fred came to them with... Fred Silverman, that is, came to them with a little idea for a studio of their own. Yeah, funny thing about that. The reason he, supposedly the reason he talked uh, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears into making their own studio was he thought that Hanna-Barbera had gotten, see, what's the phrase? He's feeling like their output was getting stale and kind of the same and thought that giving them competition would uh, help with that. Unfortunately, Joe Ruby's and Ken Spears practically just created the same stuff Anna Barbera was doing and just kind of made it worse. <laughs> mm. Hello, Fangface. Meanwhile, the other main creator of the characters, Iwao Takamoto, would go on to be a producer on Hong Kong Fui and Jabberjaw when not directing feature films for Hanna Barbera, including Charlotte's Web and the Jetsons movie. In addition to many, many other roles with them and Time Warner once they acquired Hanna-Barbera. Yeah, he oversaw a lot of, he did a lot of character designs and oversaw a lot of character designs in a majority of like the 70s output of Hanna-Barbera at the time. Today, under the ownership of Time Warner Media, Scooby-Doo has proven to be one of the most durable franchises in animation or indeed any aspect of modern popular culture. Which is pretty amazing when you think about it. The, the show's got a pretty lit. You'd think the show's got a pretty limited, like show setup, but here we go. It's it's 2021, and we've still got new Scooby stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the revival began in full with the made-for-home video movie Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island in 1998, which would lead to them returning to network television on the WB network. And like Pemmy said, it hasn't stopped since with the franchise continuing to see new productions in the form of TV series, animated films, and even a pair of live-action theatrical releases. With the latest series, Scooby-Doo and Guess Who, having only now just finished its run. See, 
I also want to mention, like, while I like What's New Scooby-Doo, What's New Scooby-Doo kind of has an issue that I do have with some of the later Scooby-Doo stuff before the revival, which is the creepiness factor of the show seemed to get less and less and less. Mm, uh, colors, colors are brighter. Atmosphere is less. And What's New Scooby-Doo, while I like it, is also very bright and not very spooky. Um, it didn't feel like they got back to like spookiness until like uh, Mystery Incorporated, which doubled down on the spookiness aspect. Indeed, is in my opinion my second the favorite incarnation of Scooby Doo. But and Warner's not done with with Scooby yet either. A new spinoff starring Velma Dinkley as the lead character is in production under the auspices of Mindy Colling. Isn't that a live action show? Possibly. I'm not 100% sure. Let's see, weren't they also talking... Isn't somebody also make, talking about making a show based on Wednesday Addams? That, that's definitely live action. That's bound for Netflix. Wow. Yeah, and we got that Scoob movie, which was... Eh. I'll admit I enjoyed it, but I think that was more just the novelty of seeing, the, of seeing all those other characters again. So... Hmm, we'll talk about that another day. Yeah, I'm not going to say it's bad, but I'm going to say that I felt like it could have been so much better. Also, I don't buy the scene where Scooby and Shaggy kind of stop being friends thing, because I don't think that would ever happen with those characters. Yeah. Anyhow, with a few oddball exceptions, like the live-action Yogi Bear movie, the Wacky Races revival, and some made-for-DVD films featuring the Jetsons and Flintstones crossing over with WWE wrestling personalities... Scooby and the gang were essentially the last vintage Hanna-Barbera franchise standing tall through the 2000s, with the quasi-exception of Tom and Jerry. Yeah, if you want to count that, it's an arguable counting. Yeah, yeah somehow the formula of comedy and spookiness has stood the test of time. And even Joe Barbera has admitted to being baffled by that, because he's yeah. like, you know how every episode's going to end, <laughs> I think is a comment he made about it. Though... It's worth mentioning that uh, you may notice a lot of Hanna-Barbera shows have, like, dog sidekicks. And that supposedly that's because Joe Barbera was a big dog guy. He was a big fan of pet do having dogs as pets. So he had the kind of the he had the mentality is, like, if you need <laughs> add a dog, it'll help. Seemingly Muttley was one of his favorite characters, too. Mm -hmm. So us here at the podcast are hoping the success of Jellystone will turn the corner for a lot of Hanna-Barbera's more disused characters over the past few years. God, I hope so. I as well as the eventual arrival of the series Bedrock. Hey, yeah. And hey, we got Snooper and Blabber for a whole three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, also, one other thing I think is funny. Scooby-Doo is one of the most longest-running and most enduring shows, cartoon shows, and yet it stars a dog breed that rarely lasts, rarely lives past 10 years. <laughs> wow. Yeah, one of the unfortunate things about dogs is usually the bigger they are, the shorter their lifespans. And Great Danes have one of the shortest lifespans of any dog. I think Joe, Barber, Joe Barbera mentioned once that Scooby was infinitely eight. I'm like, you mean Scooby's at death's door this entire time? Jeez, guy. Yikes. <laughs> Eek. <laughs> and that that's a scary thought, but Pemmy, I got an even scarier one. What? We're out of Scooby Snacks. Flinks! What are we going to do? <laughs> well, it's back to the cereal aisle for us. We'll see you in two weeks, folks.
Like, bye! The opinion changed to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast! The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.